Good morning. How are we doing today? Good to see you. Um, the big news for us this week was, of course, finally completing on Ashley Road. Now, those, those of you who've been in, in the midweek groups this week, uh, there's been a little bit of talk about what's happening, but we've done a Q&A sheet. I've done a Q&A sheet, uh, which is available on the Connect desk, which explains a bit more about how we're going to organize things between here and Ashley Road once uh, we get going there. So pick up one of those. Should answer some of your questions, and it's probably provoked some others, so you can come and ask uh, other questions if you have them, but hopefully that will help us clarify a few things about how we're going to get going. And we have kind of got going immediately that the first thing that's happened actually is we've uh, had people going there to do uh, the fire safety stuff. We take, take that kind of thing seriously, so that's the first thing that's, that's happening in terms of improving the fire safety. Actually, uh, by the way, when I came in this morning up from uh, Skinner Street, somebody has parked right in front of the fire doors in the top hall. It would be really helpful if you didn't do that in case there is a fire and the kids need to get out. Um, so if you could avoid doing that, please, that would be really helpful. Um, and then uh, this week... We've got other contractors starting to go in, uh, making improvements on the building, so we're getting going on it straight away. Uh, but that letter will help explain a little bit more of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Great. We are, our theme today is uh, Joyful Conflict. We're doing a, a series on joy from the uh, letter to the Philippians. And today's subject is Joyful Conflict. The world is full of conflict, global and local and personal. And there's actually something kind of odd about that, because most of us don't enjoy conflict. I mean, certainly I don't. Most of us would, would rather avoid conflict. Now, there are some people who are just very confrontational arguments of people who are always looking for a fight. But most people aren't like that, and most of us tend to avoid those who are like that. We know who they are. They're very obvious. And we kind of try and skirt around <laughs> them rather than engage them, because most of us want to live a peaceful life. Uh, we, don't, we don't like conflict, and I'm sure that's true of most people around the world. We prefer and look for peace. And the extraordinary thing is that even those people who actually have potential for, for great violence often really are, are look, still looking for peace. I think uh, we're in Paul, we've got the special forces based here. I think some of the guys I've met in, in the SBS who, who basically, they're, they're still obviously capable of extraordinary violence. I think of one guy I know who was in the Marines and the SBS for 38 years, and I'm... I'm he never says. Oh, I'm sure he's killed people. Must have done in all the fights he's been in. But he, you'd ne he's the gentlest guy you'll ever meet. You'd never get. And he's a kind of a, he's a peaceful guy. So even people who are capable of, of extraordinary violence still kind of want peace. And it's typical of us as as humans beings. And the, and the Christian story is that Christianity begins and ends in peace. Now God dwell eternally in perfect peace. We believe in one God but God who's in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And throughout all eternity, God was living in this relationship of perfect peace in himself. Complete joy, love, contentment, happiness, the three in one God. And then the world and the universe was made because of the overflow of God's love, that the, the essence of who God is, this God of peace and joy and love, that overflowed in God's creative act, and he made the universe, made the world, made you, and made me. And that's very different from all other stories that are told about how the universe exists. It's very different from all other creation accounts. The, the, the pagan account of how things came to be as, as they are is, is normally some variant on a story of there being kind of two competing spiritual powers. You've got a, a, a basically good 
spiritual force and a basically evil spiritual force, and they are in conflict, and the universe is formed as a consequence of their conflict rather than out of the love and peace and joy of the true God. And that actually is a hopeless story in the end. It offers no real offer of salvation for us human beings because normally how that plays out is well, where is evil located and where is good located if there's these two competing forces. It normally ends up saying, well, the good is in, in something kind of intangible, this spiritual essence which needs to be released from the corruption of the physical world. And that's, actually that's a hopeless gospel because we know that so much of what is good about the world is the physicality of it. And I don't want to be a disembodied spirit going into some nirvana. I want my body to experience the goodness of the good things that the world has by the grace of God. So the, the pagan story is a, is a hopeless one. Uh, but the current more prevalent one in our culture today, the naturalistic one, is equally hopeless because that says, why are we here? Well, it's just blind chance, random force, evolution grinding its way brutally to where we've got. And again, that, if that's your worldview, really that offers no ultimate um, grounds for hope. Where do you find in the end peace and joy and love if we're here simply as the result of blind, grinding brutality? There's no hope there in the end. It's, it's a hollow doctrine. There's nothing to connect with there. And so the Christian story, the true story of a God who out of the overflow of peace and love and joy made the universe and made us, well, there's something nourishing and wonderful about that. So that's how it starts. A God who loved and a God of peace, a God who spoke and a God who breathed and we were made. The story begins in peace but it also ends in peace that we believe heaven comes down to earth, that God comes to dwell amongst his people in perfect love and peace and joy. So we have these two bookmarks of confidence how the world got to be here and how the world ends. But in the middle, what happens? And how does the end, how is that made possible? Well, it's made possible because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Evil had come into the world because of human beings rebelling against God, how is that fixed? It's fixed by God himself coming to the earth and Jesus reconciling us to God, making peace between us and God. This is the glory, the great message of the Christian gospel. It means that for us Christians, a fundamental problem has been resolved because we understand the fundamental human problem is a lack of peace with God. But Jesus makes peace with God possible. And so we now anticipate the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, being revealed in all its fullness. We anticipate heaven coming to earth and God dwelling with us in complete and perfect love and joy and peace. Hallelujah. That's the story of the gospel. It's captivating. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But it doesn't exempt us from conflict now as we live now in what is still a fallen world. And so we need to acknowledge conflict and we need to understand conflict, and we need to handle conflict. And so this morning, what I really want to do is to think about how those of us who are Christians are meant to live in a conflict-ridden world. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not exempt uh, or unwelcome. You're so welcome here. But this is, in what Paul writes in this letter, it's especially relevant for us who know Jesus Christ. If you don't yet know Jesus Christ, listen in, and uh, maybe... Uh, you'll find yourself drawn to him and peace in him 
2. So let's turn to Scripture. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 1. And I uh, just encourage you, as, as I, even as I read the Scripture, and it's, it's a letter that's been written, so it's kind of... Um, doesn't at first glance wouldn't seem to contain particularly deep uh, philosophical or theological ideas. It's very practical, but we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And I was just kind of um, reminded of this as I was talking with somebody on Friday, and just thinking again about the power of the Word. So my pastoral encouragement to us would be that, as even as I read these verses, expect God to do something in you, quite independent of anything I might say. It's the Word of God that we come to this morning. We look for the Word of God to feed us and nourish us. So let's read. It's uh, page 691, last four verses of Philippians chapter 1. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that's from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Uh, the context of this letter, this instruction, is that uh, Paul, who reads, of course, now talk about as the Apostle Paul, was writing this letter, and he was writing it from prison. He was in prison in Rome, and he's writing to his friends in Philippi, and Philippi was a city uh, in, in New Testament terms in Macedonia, what we'd think of now as Greece, although, of course, historically and still currently, the issue of Macedonia and Greece is complex. And if you said to a, a Greek person that Macedonia isn't Greece, you'd probably get an angry response. It's still a live issue. Uh, so anyway, it's in this, what we, you and I would probably think of as Greece, this, this, this city, Philippi. And uh, the general tone of the letter is one of joy. It's called Paul's epistle of joy, it's, it's, it's happiness. But it's happiness, but it's not denial. And so the first thing to see is that we need to acknowledge conflict. So Paul's chains are real. And he could have denied it. He could have denied the reality of his circumstances. He didn't. He, he recognized it. He's chained. And he's chained literally to a Roman soldier, to a guard. And Christianity is honest. We're not into some kind of Eastern mysticism which would say we're just kind of pretend it isn't really as it is. We'll raise ourselves spiritually to a higher plane and pretend that the realities of life are no longer real. What's really real is where we can get to into some kind of spiritual nirvana. Now, that's not Christianity. Christianity looks direct in the face to realities of life, acknowledges the realities of conflict. If you're chained to a Roman soldier, you're chained to a Roman soldier. That's the reality, and that was Paul's reality. Paul is engaged in conflict. And when we're engaged in conflict, we should acknowledge it. And there are times when conflict is much more obvious and very hot. Uh, but actually, conflict is pretty normal. It, it's a, a routine experience for us as human beings to experience some kind of conflict, some kind of struggle, some kind of suffering. It's just part of the deal of being a human being. And we should acknowledge that. But acknowledging conflict isn't enough. That only helps if you then go from a place of acknowledging conflict to understanding why there is conflict. And so let's think about that. Now, conflict comes from lots of different angles. And the reality is that life is attritional much of the time. It just is. Last Sunday, I wasn't here. Uh, not because I planned not to be here. It's because I put my back out the previous Friday. And 
wasn't able to come, which was extraordinarily frustrating. I had a few days lying on my back. It's improving, but still not as good as I'd want it to be. That's attritional, it just is. Uh, Les got a puncture on his car this week. That's annoying, it's attritional. Uh, stuff happens. Uh, you get stuck in a traffic jam. It's attritional. You have a bill to pay you weren't expecting and can't really afford. That's attritional. Uh, you get into a disagreement with someone else. That's, a, that's attritional. There's all kinds of stuff that happens in life. Life is thorns and thistles. That's just how life is. And the problem often for us is that we can think that life is meant to be like it is in the glossy magazines. We, we kind of get conned by advertising to think that our lives should pass without a ripple. And we can kind of imagine that how our lives should be. It should be strolling down a perfect tropical beach, dressed like Richard Branson in white linen and with a beautiful woman on one hand and a bottle of champagne in the other, and that's how life should be. The reality is, even if that was you, and you were strolling down a beautiful beach, dressed in white linen like Richard Branson with a beautiful woman and a bottle of champagne, there'd still be a mosquito that would come and bite you. <laughs> or there'd be a shell you'd cut your toe on. That's just how life is. There's always something. There's always a fly in the ointment. There's always some grit in the oyster. It's just how life is. And actually, there's mercy in that. Because... God won't let us forget there's a problem that only he can fix. That actually the ills of the world in the end can't be fixed by our ingenuity and efforts and desires. In the end, the ills of the world can only be fixed by the one who made it in the first place, by God himself. Now, Paul, in his particular focus here, is, is thinking about the spiritual origin of conflict. And at root, all conflict is spiritual. Any attrition, any irritation, any disaster is fundamentally a consequence of living in a fallen world. And the re reason the world is fallen is because of human rebellion against God. The world's not as it is meant to be, and it's not as it will be when heaven comes down to earth. But Paul's focus here is even more narrow, and it's on the conflict in which he is currently engaged in a prison in Rome. He's in prison, that's a place of conflict, and Paul says that the Philippian church are engaged with him in that conflict, and that's, that's an important observation. Paul is the one who's in prison, but the Philippians are engaged with him in his struggle while he's there. They're in it too. They've got skin in the game. Paul suffers, and they suffer as well. And that reveals a lot about what it means to be a Christian, that those of us who are Christians are organically connected to one another. We're in Christ Jesus, and that means we're connected to one another. That means if one part of the body hurts, other parts of the body hurt with it. It means if one part of the body does something foolish, then we all suffer. Uh, we're very prone to individualitis in our modern society, where you think, it's, I make my decisions about what I want to do. And really, that's a modern disease. It's not a Christian quality. A Christian quality is we understand that we're connected together, we're invested in community and relationship and understand that what I do has impact upon others and thinks that way rather than just thinking about me and my actions and my desires. So Paul's suffering, he's struggling, he's in conflict, the Philippians are suffering, struggling, they're in conflict too because they're connected to Paul. But it's not only Paul's struggles, the Philippians have got their own struggles um, this is made very clear. A few years earlier, Paul had written to another church, a church in Corinth, 
in 2 Corinthians 8, and he talks about what the Philippians and other churches in that region had experienced. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. A severe test of affliction. Seems that the church in Philippi were known for being in a context where they were often experiencing a really hard time, but they were also known for being a particularly joyful people. And that's a wonderful and amazing combination. Now, conflict is a guaranteed part of the Christian life. Actually, it's a guaranteed part of life. It's just part of being human. There's going to be mosquitoes and things to stub your toe on. But for Christians, particularly, it's guaranteed. Now, that is partly just because we live in this fallen world, but it's also the reality of spiritual warfare. That our belief in Jesus Christ will provoke opposition. And so Paul's experience of his struggles is actually much more the norm than probably we would tend to take for granted. I think it's almost a case that if we're not experiencing spiritual opposition in some way, there's probably something wrong. <laughs> that the normal state of affairs is that we're engaged in this conflict. Um, the really extraordinary thing, though, is that Paul says here that while faith in God is a gift, so is suffering, so is struggle, so is conflict. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And that's pretty consistent in terms of what scripture teaches about why we experience conflict, difficulty, struggle. Let's look at some other scriptures which underline this. It's clear that we follow a suffering Lord. Jesus himself suffered. In John 15, John said to his, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If we're following Jesus, then we're going to be treated as Jesus was at times. He was persecuted. Christians should expect persecution. The suffering can be a means of experiencing God's love. Romans 5, Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, that seems a very strange thing for Paul to say, that we rejoice in our sufferings because where does it lead? It leads to an experience of God's love. That, that, that seems completely counterintuitive. But I know it's true. I know it's true because the Scripture says it. I also know it's true because so many of you have demonstrated that. There are so many Christians I can look at in both history and from personal encounter, who have gone through times of suffering and can say, without, without some kind of falseness, not, without getting into the unreality, but being totally real, acknowledging fully the conflict, the struggle, the suffering, can say, yes, that is real, but in that, I found a fresh experience of the love of God. I found a fresh experience of the love of God. Um, and this brilliant book, The Happy Christian by David Murray, and if you haven't yet it, got it and started reading it, then you are insane. Uh, he says this, the apostles do not downplay sin or suffering, neither do they view them apart from the sovereign power and wisdom of God, who is able to make the most and the best of our least and our worst. Let me illustrate this with the Stockdale paradox, named after Admiral Jim Stockdale, 
who was held captive for eight years during the Vietnam War and tortured more than 20 times before finally making it home. According to Stockdale, it was mainly optimists who did not survive the POW camps. Strange, isn't it? He explained the one, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. This is not acknowledging the reality. In contrast to this false optimism, Stockdale attributed his survival to realistic faith. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Extraordinary thing to say. He concluded, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with a discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. So a good illustration of a spiritual truth. Uh, suffering can actually be a means by which we experience more of God's love. Suffering is also the evidence that we still live in the present evil age. Because so much about 21st century Britain is wonderful, we take it for granted and we still complain, but it is amazing that we have electric lights which come on when we press a switch and there's hot water that comes out of taps and we can afford clothes and we've got enough food to eat. Because all those things happen, we can sometimes forget that we live in what is still an evil age. Galatians 1 says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And sometimes suffering can remind us that the age we still live in is evil. And in that sense, suffering can actually be a kind of a motivation to mission. It reminds us this world isn't as it should be, that salvation isn't just in better schools and better hospitals. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. And so experiencing some struggle can actually provoke us to share the news of Jesus Christ, the one who is able to make peace ultimately between us and God. And God also uses suffering to make us more like Jesus. Romans 8 we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Things are not working as they should be. Life is hard, but where's it going to go for the Christian? It's being conformed to the image of God's Son. It's becoming more like Jesus. Of course, there's a choice in that, that when we experience struggle, conflict, suffering, we can respond in a way which actually draws us away from Jesus, or we can respond in a way which helps conform us to his image. Now, Paul's ministry in Philippi had begun in opposition and struggle. And the kind of imagery he's using here is, as he often does in his letters, it's kind of an athletic imagery. There's a, a Greek word, agon, that Paul uses here, which was used to uh, describe the athletes in the arena. And the whole point about opposition, the whole thing about competition, the whole thing about sports, and never mind being an athlete in the arena, the whole thing is, is that without opposition, there's no game. You can't play football with one team. You have to have there has to be opposition. And... and the point that Paul's making here is that when we experience conflict, it's not simply that we're passively waiting for it to hit us, but as Christians, we're actively engaged in it. Like athletes in the arena, we're stepping up 
to engage in the conflict because we've been called into this spiritual fight. Paul's ministry had begun with suffering in Philippi. He'd been flogged and thrown in prison there. And if we're faithful to Christ, there is going to be this extra edge to our experience of conflict. There's all the attrition, the conflict just of being alive in a fallen world. But as Christians, there's a spiritual dynamic that we have an enemy who seeks to oppose us. And so we need to step up and engage in the fight. We need to understand that, that conflict ultimately is spiritual at root. So we need to acknowledge conflict and we need to understand conflict. But even that isn't enough. We then need to be able to handle conflict. And in these verses, Paul gives us three pointers for how we can do that. He says to live worthy of the gospel, to stand together and to be brave. So let's think about those three things. First thing, live worthy of the gospel. Be consistent. Live a life that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be godly. And the reality is that it's easy in times of conflict to act in ungodly ways. So say there's a disagreement that forms between a couple of us in the church. And that happens. It happens because of our human natures and it happens because we're engaged in spiritual conflict and we have an enemy who loves disagreements to happen in churches. So say there's a disagreement that happens between a couple of us in the church. How do we respond? Well, the natural way, the human way, and the way it's very easy to fall back into is, is where you start to uh, get very defensive in terms of your own position. It's where we start to kind of spin stuff, where we're talking to other people and we spin the story to make ourselves look better and the other person look worse. It's where we start to gossip a little bit. We try and sow things to, uh, so we can kind of win our argument and, get, and make our case. We start to backbite and point score. That, that's the natural human reaction to argument, to division, to conflict. We mustn't do it. We mustn't do it. If we're going to live worthy of the gospel, we mustn't do that. And the gospel isn't only how we come to faith, it's about how we live. We come to faith in Jesus Christ because we hear the truth of the gospel that there is a God who is good and loves us. And Jesus, his son, is our savior who came to earth and dwelt amongst us as a human being and died on the cross in our place and has carried the weight of our sin and now reigns in glory and one day is coming back again. That's the gospel, but the gospel isn't just how you get saved, the gospel is how you live, that we believe and act day by day with Jesus as our Lord, Jesus as our Savior. We live as Christian citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The city of Philippi was in what we think of now as Greece, but it was a, it was a, Rome, it was a Roman colony, as they described it, that put a bunch of people there to form this city and for it to be a strategic point for the Roman Empire. And a lot of the people who lived in Philippi would have been retired soldiers. That's how the empire worked. You served in the legions and then you got pensioned off and you got sent to a Roman city and maybe given a bit of land or set up in business. And this city established as a strategic place. And it's good to have lots of ex-soldiers in town because it means they can sort out any trouble that happens. They're experienced. They know what they're doing. And these would have been men who would have shed blood, sweat and tears for the empire. Now you can imagine these ex-soldiers getting saved, becoming part of the church of Philippi, in conflict, how do they respond? How they're being brought up and trained to respond was to respond like a Roman. And the way you respond as a Roman in conflict is you stand your ground. Because what counts is your honor and your dignity. You don't back down. You stand your ground and you fight. And in the end, if it comes to it, you get your sword out and you kill somebody. That's how a Roman responds. And Paul says to the church in Philippi that... 
You're no longer just citizens of Rome. You're now citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which means you need to do things differently. You respond differently. Don't You live worthily according to the gospel, not according to the pattern of the world in which you've been raised and trained. The gospel calls them to something different. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the challenge is how you live as a citizen of the kingdom of God while you're still a citizen of Rome. Now, Paul himself was the very embodiment of that in terms of this letter because Paul was chained to a soldier in Rome. It was a, there could have been no clearer representation of the authority and power of the Roman Empire. But the way that Paul responded to conflict was not as a Roman although he was a Roman citizen, the way he responded to conflict was as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, where he responded by seeing this situation as something which God had ordained and something that God was using in order that the gospel might spread. He responded to conflict, not like a Roman, he responded as a Christian. And we need to live the same way. We uh, don't live worthy of the gospel in order to try and obtain God's favor obtain his grace. No, we live worthy of the gospel because of the grace we have already received. The way that we try and sum up our mission, our beliefs here is through three words, adventure, purity, and compassion. And now groups midweek at the moment, we're looking at those things. It's just a way we sum up what the gospel is, to live lives of adventure and to be pure in our thoughts and actions and compassionate in how we treat others. We don't do that in order to gain God's favor, his grace. We live adventurously and purely and compassionately because of the grace God has given to us, because we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we're to live in a way that honors and reflects that. And so when in conflict, we need to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Second thing that Paul tells the Philippians to do is to stand together. Live worthy of the gospel, stand together. You know, unity is good. And conflict, by very definition, creates divisions. But conflict also allows space for additional divisions to happen. If you're struggling in one area of life, it's much easier to fall out with someone in another area of life. Um, and, and it's often with those that we're closest to. So if I'm feeling stressed, if I'm experiencing conflict in one area of my life, then I'm much more likely to kind of fall out with somebody over something else because the conflict here makes me sensitive there. And it's very often with the people who are closest to us. So if I'm feeling stressed, if I've got conflict here, it's often Grace and the kids who will get the, uh, the fallout of that because they're the people who are closest to me. And it's like that in church, because in church as well, we're, we're, we're close. This is, this is family. It's relational. And so if we're experiencing conflict here, it's easy for then division to come here as well. And it's something that our enemy would love to provoke, to stir up divisions. Oh, I'm going to give you a bit of stress there, and let's see how you handle it there. We need to stand together in those times of stress, of struggle, of difficulty, resolve to. So if you, it's like in a family, if, if you're feeling struggle, then you have to resolve. How, how, how are we gonna, the way we're going to stand is by standing together. That's how we'll get through it. And it's the same in church life. How do, we, how do we deal with conflict in church life? Well, we deal with it by standing together, by being united. Paul says that we're to stand together in one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. 
we hold our ground in the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who unites us. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us. The Holy Spirit who equips us. And so we need to look for the activity of the Holy Spirit amongst us. We need the empowering presence of God amongst us to keep us united and help us deal with struggling and suffering and conflict. And again, the imagery here is kind of like a it's kind of a Roman legion type imagery that Paul's using, that you stand together. And of course, how we stand is not by force of arms like Roman soldiers. We stand united by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And so we need to know the Spirit's presence in equipping and empowering us. We need to look for him to be at work amongst us. Stand together in the Spirit. He also says to stand together with one mind. And that means that we set aside our personal agendas for the common good of the church. Again, it's not individualitis. It's not that just I do what I want to do because I think this will make things better for me. It's how my actions affect the rest of the body of Christ here. That's difficult for us because our culture values independent thinking and is very suspicious of united thinking. As soon as a group of people think the same way about something, other people say, well, that's just groupthink. You just kind of brainwash together. That's why you're thinking the same. Uh, that's despite the fact that actually in, in our culture increasingly it feels like um, with all its talk of diversity of opinion, actually there seems to be an a narrowing conformity about what actually can be thought and said and believed. Um, now in, in the church, um, Paul doesn't see divergent thinking as positive. We can, uh, we can tend to think that the more opinions there are about something, the better. But Actually, in the church, what we're looking for is unity of mind. Now, that doesn't all mean we become clones of one another, but it means fixing our minds on the gospel and living it out. It means that we, we're agreed on why we're here, what we're doing. We agree that Jesus is Lord, that we're going to love him and serve him and love and serve one another. Unity counts. It's a bit like if you get married. Uh, when, once you get married, you're meant to make a decision that that is the person you're going to stay married to. It's not, if, you, if you get married and you spend all your time then thinking, divergent opinions, oh, I'd quite like to be with that person, I'd quite like to be with her, I'd quite like to be with her, that's not being broad-minded, that's adultery. And in the church, we're not looking for just divergent opinions about everything, actually there needs to be a unity of mind among us about what we believe about Jesus and what he's called us to and how we then work that out in terms of how we love and serve one another. Probably talk more about that next week. We need to live worthy of the gospel. We need to stand together. And the third thing we do to handle conflict is just be brave. Be brave. You know, there, there are times when things don't go well. And we have a choice to make about how we will respond. And conflict can make us very fearful wherever it comes from. Um, it can be a trivial thing or a huge thing. You get a cancer diagnosis. How are you going to respond? Paul would say, don't be frightened. Trust God. It can be something massive like that. Be brave. It could be something trivial. Yesterday, I was decided I need to clear some files off my iPad to free up some memory. Deleted. I, actually, since I've, I've had this for three years, and every time I've preached, it's got my sermon notes on it, so I just deleted them all. thought, great, freed up loads of space on, 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 in my memory. And then realized that because the whole thing synced to my computer, I'd actually deleted it all. It had gone. Three years' worth of sermon notes. Gone. How did I respond? With incredible bravery and fortitude. 
No, I responded with absolute terror. <laughs> I was overcome by fear until I realized that actually it was all just in the trash and I could retrieve it and panic over. <laughs> but, I mean, but life, there's all kinds of conflict that comes away, trivial things or huge things. How are we going to respond? Paul says, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. Be brave. And conflict is something that we should anticipate, something that we should be ready for. And if you expect that it's going to come, you're much less likely to have your legs kicked away from underneath you when it does. The trouble is when we're expecting life to pass without a ripple, and then conflict comes, so what on earth is happening? We need to be ready for conflict. We need to be ready for suffering, for attrition, for difficulty. And if we're ready, we're much more likely to stand. It makes it easier to be brave. Now, the, this is an interesting phrase that Paul uses here, don't be frightened. Uh, apparently, this is the only time in um, ancient Jewish and Christian literature that this term is used. Uh, it's usually used in, Groman, uh, Groman? in Greek and Roman. I think I might coin that as a phrase. It's good, Groman. Uh, uh, Greek and Roman literature, and it refers to, to animals being frightened. It's like a horse that gets spooked in battle. And so Paul's saying, don't be like a horse that gets spooked in battle when you face conflict. No, be brave. Be brave. Don't get spooked. And he says, don't get spooked in anything. That covers all bases. Cancer diagnosis, computer disaster, don't get spooked. Be brave. This is, this is very practical because for the Philippians, there must have been many times when there was stuff going on that would have been profoundly threatening and could have caused profound fear amongst them. They were living in a hostile environment as Christians. They were now proclaiming that Caesar wasn't the ultimate Lord, but Jesus was. And that's a dangerous thing to do in a Roman town. And clearly, from the other things we know about the Philippians in Scripture, they had suffered. They had gone through all kinds of incredible hardship. So there must have been all kinds of stuff coming down the road at them the whole time, which would have made them frightened. And Paul says, don't be frightened about anything. Don't get spooked. Now, how... Is that possible? How is it possible not to be frightened when these things come down the road towards us? Paul ties it very clearly to our salvation. We are being saved. We Christians have put our confidence in Christ. We will be saved. That's how you can stand united. That's how you can live worthy of the gospel. That's how you can stand not frightened because we know that we're being saved. We know that we're secure in Christ Jesus. So don't be spooked and don't get spooky. One of the interesting things about this is that Paul doesn't get all kind of weird here in terms of, oh, you're going through this conflict. We need to find out what the name of the demon is who's afflicting you here. He doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. There's no kind of weird spiritual stuff here. What does he say? He says, live worthy to the gospel. Do what the gospel says. Stand together in the Holy Spirit, one mind, and be brave. There's nothing weird about it. It's just getting on with life, trusting that God is saving us, that Jesus is our Lord, that we're secure in Him. And remaining unshaken in Jesus Christ is it's the witness of our confidence in our eternal salvation. When struggle, difficulty, conflict, suffering comes, if we stand together, stand united, live worthy of the gospel, face down fear, that is evidence of what we believe is true. I mean, how do we know that what we believe is true? Are we just here because it's what we've got in the habit of doing, or is it really true? And one of the ways that we demonstrate it's really true is that when conflict comes, difficulty comes, suffering comes, we stand together, we live faithfully to the gospel, 
and we don't give in to fear. We need to acknowledge conflict and we understand conflict and then we handle conflict. And we do that because we're happy in God. Now, it's often very difficult to know why particular struggles, sufferings, conflicts come our way. It's often hard to discern the, the real origin of these things. I think, a trivial example, but why did my back pack up Friday before last? Well, I was putting milk away in the fridge. I shouldn't have made Richard a cup of coffee. That was a mistake, being too generous. Uh, I think there's biological reasons. I've, uh, as long as I can remember, since being a child, I've always had some degree of back pain, so I've got a, a, a weakness. So that's my parents' fault for giving me dodgy genes, so I can blame them. It's a biological reason. Uh, there, there, there's just kind of naturalistic reasons. I can think, uh, yeah, some things I did that week which probably I shouldn't have done, which, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. That was stupid. Uh, weak in my back. Uh, and uh, there's, there's some, probably some mental reasons. That I'd, uh, just before, I'd been in a meeting, which is quite difficult, so I was probably feeling a bit stressed. There's some kind of emotional, physical stress going on. A spiritual dynamic, I'm sure, again, because this was quite a difficult pastoral meeting I'd been in, with some division, which wasn't really resolved, and there's some spiritual conflict going on there. So why did my back go? There's biological reasons, there's behavior reasons, there's mental reasons, there's spiritual reasons. The whole thing's tangled up. How do you respond? By trusting God, by being happy in God. That's a trivial thing. There's other things which come our way which are much more significant, much bigger. How do we respond? Being happy in God, living worthy of the gospel, standing together and finding courage in him. Amen? Now, I would like to pray for those of you who are experiencing conflict, because in this room, I know there are many who are, and it's different levels. Some of it is health issues. Some people, it's relational issues. There's all kinds of stuff going on in this room. Some of it's much more spiritual. You know that there's kind of resistance coming against you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And so it'd be great to pray for one another that we would be those who stand firm in Jesus, rejoicing in him knowing that our salvation in him is secure. And when we've done that, we'll come and take bread and wine. And of course, when we take the bread and the wine, what we're doing there is we're making concrete this declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. We're coming to the bread and the wine, which represents Christ's body and blood. And we're saying, Jesus, we believe that you have made peace between us and God. If you know that you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ, you can take the bread and the wine. If you want to know that peace with Jesus Christ, with God through Jesus Christ, come and take the bread and the wine and ask for God to make himself known to you. We come in faith. We take the bread and the wine in faith, saying, Jesus, I believe that you have reconciled me to God. That fundamental problem is gone, and that means that I can look at every conflict differently, look at the world differently, have this hope in Christ forever. So why don't we stand and uh, let me pray, and then we'll break bread together. Jesus, thank you that you are the one who has enabled us to come right into our Father's presence. Thank you, Father in heaven. There's no, uh, no barrier now to stop us from rushing into your presence and knowing your joy and delight in us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, you're active and at work amongst your people. Thank you, Holy Spirit, you're active in your church. Holy Spirit, I invite you to be at work amongst us again, that we would know the power, the activity of God in our midst. And uh, Lord, I pray... For my brothers and sisters here, I pray for those who this morning are aware of conflict in their lives. Whatever it's coming from, whether it's obvious where it's coming from or whether it's much more kind of confusing, 
Lord, thank you that we can look to you for grace and for help in our time of need. I pray for those who are experiencing conflict, that they would live in a way which honors you, live worthy of the gospel. I pray that you would help us to stand united together, to be alert to, to further divisions that can come in and cause difficulties between us. And I pray, I pray Lord, for a, a courage to stand. And so, in your holy name, Jesus, I pray that you'd move upon us now and you'd minister deep into the hearts of those who need to know these things today, those who are struggling. I pray for the the grace and the mercy of God to be experienced again. I pray that now as we take bread and wine, there'll be a a sense of peace that comes. I pray that those who've got troubled hearts this morning uh, might leave with a greater sense of peace because they've had an encounter again with Jesus the Prince of Peace. Lord, how wonderful. Peace is what human beings want. Lord, it's what we want. Lord, thank you. We look to that day when you come to earth. Thank you, Jesus, that then all the attritional stuff will be gone. Thank you there'll be no mosquitoes to sting us or spread a foul virus which disables little children. Thank you. All that horrible stuff will be gone, that uh, the peace of God will be made perfectly plain to us. And thank you that now, as citizens of the kingdom, we've been called to experience that. And so I ask that this morning, a sense of the peace of God amongst us. In your precious name, King Jesus. Amen.